Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is wonderful, as ever, to be joined by you, Ashley. Yes, we have a great show coming up, don't we? Really do. Really exciting show for anyone who's ever traveled or loves to travel or has any kind of wanderlust at all, because we are talking to Luke Russert this week. Yeah, so Luke is the son of the late and famous Tim Russert of NBC's Meet the Press. He's a really iconic figure in American journalism and someone I grew up, I remember watching on TV when my dad was watching his Sunday shows. That that was a main staple. And Luke lost his father when he was just out of college very unexpectedly and kind of went into the political journalism business following in his dad's footsteps and then kind of had a quarter life crisis. Yeah, that's right. So he ends up uh, sort of like really ascending to some pretty cool places in political journalism, you know, covering Congress, rubbing shoulders with some pretty high profile people. And then, as you mentioned, has this crisis of meaning, of of grief, of faith, and ends up uh, traveling the world over the next few years. Um, and he's written the book called Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself About That Journey, which we were very happy to be joined by him in studio to discuss. Uh, and he had a great drink recommendation. Yes, he is an aficionado of Guinness. So we had a couple of bottles of that for our conversation. And that's what we're having now. Yes. So (laughs) cheers. Cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, And last week we mentioned that Pope Francis, in a really great ecumenical gesture, had sent two small pieces of the true cross. Uh, So what what we believe is what some believe is actually from the the cross. I'm a little skeptical, but um, yeah, the cross of Jesus. (laughs) Still a great gesture. And they were incorporated into the cross of Wales that's going to be used in the procession at the coronation of King Charles III. And now we have another story about the coronation. Despite, Zach, I think you're a little uh, between apathetic and anti-monarch. Yeah, I I don't want to offend too too many people listening right now. But um, I can't say that I'm super hyped up about the uh, coronation. But that's happening this weekend, correct? Yes. And there are some more historic ecumenical news coming out of the coronation. So for the first time since the Reformation, a Catholic bishop will have a formal role in the coronation of a British monarch. Obviously, the relations were not good starting in the 16th century. That Henry um, guy. Yep. <laughs> and and even, you know, with Queen Elizabeth, who we think of now, or some of us think of as a beloved figure, there were no Catholics taking uh, an official role in her coronation in 1953. Who do you think is going to play Cardinal Nichols on that t- the season <laughs> of The Crown when this comes out? <laughs> so, yes, Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the president of the Catholic Bishops Conference of England and Wales, uh, is one of several Christian leaders who will uh, give a blessing to King Charles uh, at a pretty central moment in the ceremony right after the crown is placed on his head. Sorry, I fell asleep. I'm trying really hard to care about that. <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, no, it's interesting because so Cardinal Nichols uh, gave an interview to the tablet, the Catholic Weekly in uh, Britain, um, and he said he would have never imagined or dreamed of stepping inside a church uh, in 1953 when Elizabeth was uh, crowned. Mm-hmm. And um, it re- really, Catholics weren't supposed to attend any um, not Catholic liturgies in another church. So it wasn't that he just couldn't imagine doing it. It's like he was not allowed, according yeah, to the faith. Bad blood on both <laughs> sides probably kept him out of that. Um, so he's not going to be the only one at this coronation, though, correct? Yeah. So the Vatican is also going to have its own representative at a coronation for the first time, again, in 500 years since the Reformation. It's going to be led by the Holy See 
Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Perilin, so top guy from the Vatican, representing Pope Francis at this ceremony. Yeah. According to the United Kingdom's ambassador to the Holy See, the last time that the Pope had a representative uh, taking part in a coronation ceremony was for Mary I, um, who's the first and only Catholic Queen of England, well, since... Uh, the Reformation. And she did not have a great track record um, in terms of improving Catholic-Protestant relations. No. So she's also known as Bloody Mary by her Protestant uh, detractors. Uh, And so she came in shortly after the Reformation. She was one of the daughters of Henry VIII and tried to reverse the Reformation and return England to the Catholic faith. And along the way, burned around 300 Protestants at the stake (laughs) for heresy. So... We have come a long way since then, yes. which is which is a sign of celebration. Although it is, I'm pretty sure it's still, isn't it still illegal for a Catholic to ascend to the throne? It is. Even, because, the, even if it's a symbolic throne? Yeah, because the king or queen is the defender of the faith in, in England. And so they have to uphold the Protestant Reformation in their role as king or queen. So a Catholic would have some trouble pulling that off. The real reason, <laughs> Meghan and Harry left the royal family. Am I doing this right? I have no idea. No? <laughs> Don't think either of them are cats. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> nice try. I tried. <laughs> What's our next story, Zach? So a uh, little closer to the home. Uh, last month, the Sisters of Charity of New York voted that they will no longer work towards finding nor accepting new members to their congregation and are going to continue their ministry on a path to completion. So what that effectively means is that uh, the Sisters of Charity of New York got together. They realized that they're not getting a lot of new vocations. They're going to stop pursuing new vocations, stop accepting new vocations, and sort of take the sisters that are, you know, contributing and sponsoring all these ministries and sort of steering them towards a world where the Sisters of Charity of New York are no longer. Yeah, and this is really significant. The Sisters of Charity were founded by St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who is the first person born in the United, in what would become the United States, uh, to be canonized by the Catholic Church. So she is like the founding mother of women religious in the United States. And friend of the Hamiltons, of Alexander and Eliza oh, Hamilton. Eliza Hamilton go. and Elizabeth Ann Seton uh, founded a society for widows and orphans. Okay. The, I feel like this is a big history show for us. <laughs> this is like more history than we've done in two years. Totally. And since... Uh, that time (laughs) at the uh, founding of the United States, the Sisters of Charity in New York opened or staffed 185 schools, 28 hospitals, 23 child care institutions, and many other ministries to help people on the margins. Which is, I mean, just an incredible, when you you consider like they, you know, they opened up some of the first free Catholic schools uh, in the country. They, you know, took care of so many people um, throughout our nation's history and really like laid the foundations for for Catholic education, uh, Catholic health care. Um, they were such a force, particularly in New York City. Yeah, totally. So when I heard this news, it's of, it's of course sad, but I'm also really edified by the discernment and clear thinking that went into this decision. Like there are so many people and institutions that try to hold on past their expiration date and to be able to end gracefully, whether that's an individual life or an institutional life, um, you know, takes a lot of prayerful discernment and and clear-eyed vision of the future and where, where your gifts can be used most effectively. Yeah, I thought this was really brave. I mean, it's a really hard thing to do for, for anyone, for any corporation, for any individual. And but ultimately, this is about like how to steward their resources the right way too, right? Like as you said, a lot of other people would have just like spun their tires over and over again trying to make something work and wasting a bunch of money, time, talent. Um, and ultimately, the people that lose in that scenario are the people that you know the Sisters of Charity of New York and and all of us in the church are looking to serve, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know they mentioned they still believe in the future of religious life. So um, the Sisters of Charity of New York, they're part of a, a federation of Sisters of Charity that. Uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton founded. Um, so there's, I think, 14 other uh, orders within that federation. So they're going to direct people to the national office if they come inquiring. Um, and, you know, they believe in the future of religious life, but what shape it's going to take. I think y- it makes sense that given the state of vocations where they're at right now for them to look at it and say, I don't know that that necessarily has to include us. Right. And if you look at the church's long history, it is not a failure if, you know, a religious order exists for, you know, 
two hundred years, two hundred some years, um, and that and that's like what its contribution was to the life of the church and the life of the country. That's a major win and something I hope that they're celebrating. And finally, we have another local New York story. We mentioned in earlier episodes that uh, there is a Staten Island ferry named for Dorothy Day, and last Friday it went out on its maiden voyage, uh, making the twenty-five minute trip across the New York Harbor to Lower Manhattan. Yes, so. Uh, Staten Island ferries are typically named for famous New Yorkers. Um, and this is a very fitting one, um, both because Dorothy Day founded the Catholic worker here, you know, lived here, served the people here, um, but also is a Staten Islander herself. Yeah, she raised her daughter Tamar on Staten Island, started a farm there. That's where she entered the Catholic Church. So she is deep ties to Staten Island. Yeah. So before we get into that, a couple Staten Island ferry tips for any people listening that are visiting New York. It is free. Do not buy a ticket from anyone trying to sell you a ticket to the Staten Island Ferry. It's a scam. It's a free, free service. Um, it's a great way to see the Statue of Liberty. For got, free. For free. It's got <laughs> some great views. goes by it. It's also a pretty good happy hour. They've got a bar on the boat. So um, those are just my 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 pitches for any of the Staten Island Ferries. Have you ridden, ridden it before? Oh, yeah. That is my go-to when I have a visitor in town. <laughs> yeah. It's an awesome thing to do. Also, lots of people use it to commute every day from, from the island. And our colleague, Kevin Clark, was on board and spoke to some of the veterans of the Catholic Worker Movement who were uh, on hand to witness the maiden voyage. Yeah, and they were thrilled about this. There's this famous quote from Dorothy Day, you know, don't call me a saint, then people can't, won't take me seriously. Um, but her friends and fans who were taking that that voyage thought she would be thrilled to have a ferry named after her because, as you said, it is free and open to all. It's one of the only places in New York public transportation where, you know, anyone can get on whatever their socioeconomic status. And of course, it connected her life in Staten Island to her work in lower Manhattan. Yeah. Well, Dorothy said, don't call me a saint. Um, she might be called that because her canonization process is still underway in Rome. Um, but we certainly can catch the 12 o'clock to Staten Island for the ferry named in her honor. And now stick around for our conversation with Luke Russer. Joining us in studio is Luke Russert. Luke is an Emmy award-winning journalist who served as an NBC News correspondent from 2008 to 2016. And he's the author of the new book published by Harper Horizon, Look for me there, grieving my father, finding myself. Welcome to Jesuitical, Luke. It's a pleasure to be here. I've landed in America. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for joining us. America, the country, and America there magazine. <laughs> and I know you've got some Jesuit roots, so excited to have you on a Jesuit-themed podcast. Thank you very much. Just a Boston College graduate, and then my father went to a Jesuit high school and uh, in John Carroll University, so well-versed in the Jesuit theology and... Uh, as they say, you know, go set the world aflame, right? Yeah, which over is, drinks. Uh, and over you, drinks. You selected which, our drinks for this conversation. I, I did a little Guinness, <laughs> right? Which is, uh, well, I said the Jesuits drink everything, but I think they like Guinness too. Yeah, I yeah. think that's correct. <laughs> well, you did certainly uh, travel the world and set it aflame. But before we get to that, um, I want to ask you about your father. Sure. Who, throughout this entire book, but sort of is the the spur that starts your, your own travel. So who was Tim Russert, both to the world and to you? Well, let me answer the first part. To the world, he was the moderator of Meet the Press. Uh, he was uh, the moderator of that show for uh, 17 years. And he was world-renowned and considered one of the finest journalists of his time, specifically about uh, American politics, but also global issues. Uh, appointment TV every Sunday morning, a show the President of the United States would watch, the Speaker of the House would watch. But I think what made him happiest is that guys from his own neighborhood, the cops and firefighters, the garbage men would watch. And he was somebody who was very much dedicated to the pursuit of the truth. And I think a lot of that stemmed from his formation in his South Buffalo, New York neighborhood. But the lessons that were instilled in him at a young age from the nuns at his school at St. Bonaventure and then the priests at Canisius and ultimately John Carroll University, which is that if you tell the truth, you only have to remember one story, and there is a value add to that. Uh, and then the idea of the common good and the idea that men and women should be here to serve others. Uh, and he took those lessons to heart, applied them to his journalism career. He came over from politics, had worked in politics originally, worked for Senator Moynihan in New York and then Governor Cuomo, and then made the switch in the mid-'80s, but wasn't on air until the early-'90s. Originally, he was sort of behind the scenes. 
And what he ended up doing was, I think, basically positioning himself as being a questioner on behalf of the American people with a deep sense of patriotism, a deep sense of faith, uh, but also an understanding that people want truth. They want relatability from the people asking the questions. I mean, oftentimes the ivory tower complex is real. And uh, I think those lessons about Jesus being amongst the people were something that he at least used to talk to me a lot about, for sure. And there is a real, uh, there, there's there's a validity in that for him. So who he was he professionally, that was him. Sadly, he died in uh, June 13th of 2008 at the height of his career. Yeah, I have and to say, unexpectedly. I, Go ahead, so man. it was really poignant reading this for me because I, I was born in 1990, so I have memories of basically my routine on Sunday was we would go to Sunday mass, and then my dad would sit on the couch and eat pretzels and watch <laughs> the Sunday shows. And so I rem- I can't say I have very strong memories of yeah. of your of of your father, but I remember sitting with my father watching Meet the Press and Hannity and Combs and all this. It's, so, it's <laughs> so interesting you say that because one of the things a lot of folks have said to me over the years, but especially recently when his name just pops up every now and then, is you know, I had breakfast with your dad every Sunday <laughs> morning or I watched my parents. We were being in the den and I didn't know what he was saying, but mm-hmm. I liked him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, that's, that's cool. Totally. That's and, it, and it was just like the height of like cable TV, really. I mean, it's well, he was network primarily, actor, but yeah, it's interesting TV, yeah. because there is a school of thought that his death kind of marked the end of traditional broadcast journalism, traditional cable TV. And I subscribe to that because it's right when Facebook is starting to come out as a news source. Uh, Twitter has launched, but it's not quite big yet. Blogs are launching. So the old school days of the morning newspaper, the nightly news and the Today Show and, and a little bit of cable TV in between, that was sort of the end of that era. Uh, and I think there's a lot of folks who look back on that and look at his death and it saddens them because not only did they miss him, they missed a, a simpler time sure. uh, for news, which was a lot less fragmented. And you guys had a really close relationship. So Very close. Maybe the yeah. second half of that question is- Yeah, uh, no, and so I, I was conscientious of, of his position uh, growing up from a fairly young age. I, I kind of realized like not everyone's dad is on television all the time, but <laughs> my parents went out of my way to sort of try to promote that traditional American upbringing. So it was, uh, you know, playing soccer and uh, going over to friends' houses all the time and do your chores and summer jobs and play high school football and pep rallies and the whole nine yards. So he, he always did a good job of divorcing the work side uh, and being dad. So he, he was always there, always available. And the biggest gift he ever gave to me was the gift of time. And it wasn't just time, it was honest time. Uh, I'm I, Some of my friends now have kids, and the one, I, I don't pretend to be a critic of how people raise their children, but the one thing I will always say is that if you're hanging out with your kid, but you're on your phone the entire time, that's not really hanging out with your kid. You got to engage them. And he was very good at that, where if he did have to make a call or something, he'd be like, okay, I'll be right back, and then we're going to make up this time, I won't let it go. And so I felt that he was around and he was always accessible. So that was a, a tremendous thing to have, especially from somebody who was so busy. And once I got out in the business a little bit and saw just the magnitude of responsibility that he had, it floored me. I was, I was like, my God, you, you took the call about you know me uh, asking you a, a, an English uh, verb conj- conjunction question. And you had all this going on, man. Yeah. Excuse me, Mr. President. Could, yeah, you, could right. you hold on? Luke <laughs> you hold is on. calling. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was the Catholic faith that he passed on to you like in in your childhood? So, I think like any kid, you sit in the pew. You're coming Boy. of age, right? <laughs> yeah, and the fir- your my your first memories in the pew are are your you're playing with your little matchbox cars, right? Mm-hmm. You're doing something not to anger your parents because they're going to get mad at you if you if you're making noise. And or the sign of peace is coming. So or the it's sign almost of, right over. And, and put on a smile. So be yeah. quiet. And I remember I asked him once because I was like, well, why do we come here you know, once a week? What is it? And he said to me, he goes, well, you have a lot going for you. And I was like five, four or five years old, but I still remember this. He goes, you have a lot going for you. He goes, there's a roof over your head. You're uh, you're never cold at night. You have a lot to eat. Uh, you have a lot of blessings and you got to say thank you for them at least once a week. And he said, it's about 45 minutes out of seven days. You can make the time for it. And I said, like, oh, okay. So that idea of, I think what we often see in Catholicism, which is 
as one Jesuit uh, said to me at BC, it's time to pay the piper. <laughs> uh, I think there is a big element of that, which was mm. be conscientious of your blessings that God has bestowed upon us and take some time to reflect on them and uh, be mindful of them and and live a, a, a decent and uh, an honorable life to the best of your abilities. You're going to have to tip me off to this D.C. priest who gives 45-minute <laughs> masses. Well, there, yeah, and so it, that's a funny story. There, so my dad, you know, he couldn't really go on Sundays most of the time because he mm. would work on Sunday mornings. So he would often go to the Saturday vigil. Mm. And, and they don't have all the music. There is one at Georgetown <laughs> University Chapel uh, at the hospital chapel that was at four o'clock every Saturday, and it was called the half hour of power. Wow. <laughs> half hour of power. The half hour of power. <laughs> and uh, he was a frequent, frequent uh, congregant there. And I'll never forget one day, the, the Washington Post had asked sort of Washingtonians, like, what are you doing for the football team's playoff game at the time? And I think it was a Saturday playoff game that started at four. And my dad's like, well, I'll, I'll be there after about the first quarter because I go to my uh, Saturday mass at Georgetown University Hospital and it only lasted a half hour, so I should be able to see most of the game. And so that Saturday, I happened to go with him. And usually there would be about, you know, 20, 30 people there. There was 300 people there. Oh, That's my incredible. God. <laughs> it was like every Catholic, the beacon went up. And was like, There's a half hour mass. Oh, we're right there. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You think the draw was the 30 minutes and not uh, your dad yeah, being there? Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you know, Luke, I want to ask what it was like to lose your dad at such a young age. So you just graduated like from three weeks college, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So 22, yeah. you're looking forward in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and, yeah. and this kind of is a, a shocking thing. It is. Do. I mean, I think it, it's cliche to say, but it's absolutely true is you grow up really quick. And the, you know, he died on June 13th and between, you know, June 12th to June 14th, I say I, I grew up almost in my mind, almost like five years overnight. And the reason being is because just aside from the psychological impact that that's going to have on you is, is, and the emotional impact it's going to have on you. It starts off with when you have unexpected and sudden death, there's all this sort of paperwork that um, people don't really talk about a lot. I don't, I don't really talk about it in the book, but it's something that always, when I think about this question, it's like death certificates and funeral notices and putting that all together. And you is, I'm like, I'm just this college kid, and now I'm in charge of all this, and I have to do all these things, and I have to take the load off of mom, and there's the man of the house idea, and, and now people look at me differently. There's more responsibility placed on my shoulders. So you have that component. And then the psychological one is, wow, it's my, my guiding star, my guiding light, my muse. It's all gone. And where do I turn for that? Where is Who's going to fill that void? What can fill that void? Uh, and there's no easy answers. And I think it takes a long time to sort of get to a place of comfort. Probably wrote a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, 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 at a young age, it's it's significantly uh, it, more difficult. I would I, it's difficult at any age. But when you lack that natural sort of uh, the ability to to mature, but to have your parents as a little bit of a fallback. Like my dad was the person I would call up and be like. All right, so how do I get like the heating guy over here, or how do I call the plumber, right? Uh, which is you learn a little bit of that in college, but you don't know how to open a preventative HVAC account to come service your machinery, you know, once in the fall and once in the spring, right? And you're in your aging apartment building, <laughs> so it's those types of things that you miss out and you feel it in uh, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. I that struck me, the age, because I there are people in, in my life, including my older siblings, who lost a parent at like a, a very young age where they have vague memories, but not not that gift of time right. all the way through that you had with your father. So it's still very young, but you are technically an adult, even if you don't feel like one. And so I'm wondering, like, how did that make just like the transition launching in your 20s difficult? I, it's interesting because I've always sort of flown at 35,000 feet and been like, okay, well, sort of what we were talking about earlier. Like he left at this time when media was changing and I just graduated from college. So he basically leaves at this time when in theory it's, okay, Luke graduated, secure enough, right? And the media environment's changing. He's at the top of the world. He's done it. So if you believe in divine intervention and you believe in faith, it's an interesting time for for my father to go home. I think for me, um, you know, personally, there was added pressure because of that. 
I think that you can't simply fall back on this idea of, well, I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. Well, no, you're, you're a graduate. You have your own apartment. You, you pay your own taxes, right? You're, you're launched up there. So there is an idea of I have to live up to the standards of uh, my father, but also coming into being an adult. You know, there's a reason why when you're 22 to about 30, you reference as a young adult, right? Yeah. Because you're young. <laughs> and there's a lot of things there that uh, take some time to, to, to learn and to understand. And it's, uh, it's not always easy. When I get to uh, travel, there's a period of, what, eight years in between where we're, we're leaving off right now and where you start to hit the world? So, I, yeah, I, I start out at MB. So I give this eulogy uh, uh, at my father's funeral. And it was broadcast live on cable TV on MSNBC, and a lot of people saw it. And then clips of it were were sent around. And uh, right about in the book, it was kind of this being launched out of a cannon. People saw that uh, it resonated with a lot of people, and I started to get offers and media, which was was unexpected. I had done some work in in radio, um, but kind of like this vibe, which is nice. It's nice. But never had those expectations to, to do that right away. I wanted to go to uh, grad school. I wanted to get a degree in international relations. But I sort of saw this moment, and, and it came, and my mom said to me, she said, you know, God puts you in certain times and places to to take to do things, and if you want to do it, you should do it. Uh, just be mindful of what it's going to entail. And so I went into the media career, and at first I had some success, and then I sort of, you know, ran into some difficult headwinds of uh, um, understandable critique about nepotism or just trying to understand the intricacies of the business at a very young age, still very much somebody in grief. Uh, but I dug down and really came to this conclusion. I wanted to go out, go in, or go out on my own terms, and that's how I ended up on Capitol Hill. Uh, is that the NBC was short of a person up there. I had followed politics my entire life, some of it via osmosis, but also a very genuine interest in it because it was the conversation around the family dinner table for so many nights. So I became an off-air reporter producer uh, and just really jumped into all things Capitol Hill, the parliamentary procedure, uh, late nights, early mornings, doing radio hits, and then occasionally doing a TV hit. And it sort of snowballed from there where I became a congressional correspondent for NBC and, and MSNBC and did that till 2016. Did some other stories. I interviewed Usher, did a, uh, you know, did some celebrity stuff like New Year's Eve with Carson Daly, but then hurricanes and earthquakes and mass shootings and uh, missing children and riots. So the, the American quilt, if you will, and, and politics and some inspirational feel good stuff too. So I, I had a good eight year career of, of television and getting a feel for it. Uh, and towards the end of those yeah. eight years, uh, John Banner calls yeah. you into his office. Um, I'm Jesuit trained. <laughs> Jesuit trained. That's right. John Banner. High and Xavier. So can can you tell us that story? Because I love that story. So it's fascinating. I'm on Capitol Hill. It's uh, spring of 15. And you know, I had had some feelings over the course of the years. Like, well, is this really what I want to do? Or... Uh, am I good at this? Should I do and this? And spring of 15, this is like Trump's coming down the golden he's, escalator he's, time right? period. It's, everything is about to get really interesting, yeah. really fast. And I had been in you know, the game, shall we say, for at that point in high level intense politics for about six years, which was a lot, especially for a young guy. And about to turn 30, which is silly now because I'm 37. But when you're about to turn 30, like, oh, my God, I'm getting really old. Yeah, yeah. just, like, just yeah. turn 30. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know what it's like, yeah. right? The light at the end of the tunnel seems to be brighter, even though it's really not. <laughs> yeah. So, But Boehner, who I covered all these years very aggressively, out of, out of the blue, calls me and he says, hey, you know, I want you to come to my office. And I say, oh, gosh, I, I angered him. I did something wrong. He's very upset about something I said or in an interview or whatnot. So I had no idea. That's what I assumed. And we get there and you know, he's smoking a cigarette, which he would always do inside. Funny story. The uh, architect of the Capitol would always gave him the worst artwork a speaker ever had because they didn't want the smoke to <laughs> ruin the artwork. <laughs> so every other like important person in the Capitol has incredible artwork dating back to like, the 1700s. Boehner has stuff that you would find in like a motel <laughs> wall. So and dolls- and just some quick context for maybe our younger listeners, sure. John Boehner. Republican, Speaker of the House, 
as you mentioned, Jesuit educated, instrumental in getting Pope Francis to address Congress. He that was his, and, and he retired the day after that happened. And what happened was, is he called me in, and he's like, um, "What are you doing here?" And I go, "Well, you called me into this meeting. <laughs> what do you mean? What I'm doing? No." He's like, "What are you doing here?" Here, I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll, I see you. I've seen you around this building for a number of years." You think it's the center of the world, and to a degree it is, but what are you really doing? Because there is a world outside of this. I mean, you should go out and do something. Just do something else. You can always come back to this. Go go out and get a feel for how people live, how things are. This is kind of time's a flat circle here. And it was one of those conversations which really affected me, which you know, someone said it was sort of like ghosts of Christmas past in a way, <laughs> or divine intervention, whatever you want like to say. Like John Boehner saw a little yes, bit of his young self in you. Correct, and maybe. <laughs> and I sat there, and I I left the office. I was a little flustered, which I never would. I used to put off this jocularity and bravado at that time. And I went outside and sat on the bench and thought about the conversation for quite a while. And it, it stirred something up in me, which was okay. There are these feelings of, I'm not fulfilled. There's something missing. And what he suggested was sort of along the lines of, go out and find something else or don't be afraid to. You know, it's okay to get out there. And that sort of started the the wheels a little bit more. They, they had been going a little bit, but then it really ramped up. And then as you mentioned earlier, timing helped out a lot. And it had been getting increasingly more partisan, and the vitriol was was real, and it was not nearly what it was when I started in '09. I mean, you could, you could, it was a very very downward slope, and um, it came to that conclusion. I said, you know, I want to try something else, or just try some to have some time to decompress and reflect and and reassess and see what I want to do and uh, what I'm about. And so I left. <laughs> I mean, and Boehner did shortly thereafter. Yeah, Boehner. No, Boehner. He <laughs> think preceded he me. Been... <laughs> he preceded me. So I okay. actually ended up with. I had Paul Ryan for a few months. Okay. Another Catholic guy. <laughs> and uh, funny story. I think I, I think this is out there now. But um, originally, Kevin McCarthy was supposed to be speaker after Boehner, and just like he just recently had happened, he had difficulty getting there. Ended up not having the votes. And they're like, "Oh gosh, we need a speaker." And Boehner's like, "Well, I don't want to stay on." So Ryan was one who could do it, Paul Ryan, and uh, he didn't want to do it. And so Painter called up uh, Bishop Dolan here in New York and said, pressure him. <laughs> <Call> <laughs> say it's God's will. And it ended up working. Oh, my so gosh. That was, uh, that was a good way of, uh, of, of getting him there. Are you a person in your 20s or 30s who is looking to deepen your faith, grow as a leader, explore your vocation, all while being a part of a welcoming, inclusive community of your peers? You might consider becoming a Contemplative Leader in Action, or CLA. This is an Ignatian Leadership Program for Young Adults sponsored by the Office of Ignatian Spirituality and Ignatian Young Adult Ministries. Ignatian leadership invites us to act in a way that reflects our beliefs, affirms our purpose, and promotes justice. CLA is an 18-month program with cohorts that gather twice per month to explore themes like relational leadership, leading in complexity, and accountable leadership. The experience begins and ends with a retreat with days of reflection along the way. New cohorts are forming now. Be a contemplative leader in action. Apply today at contemplativeleaders.org. The application deadline is May 1st, 2023. Now, so you decide to quit um, this pretty successful career yeah. in media. You're um, making a name for yourself, getting your own, like you're racking up the followers on social as, as things are coming, you, you're sort of stepping out of your dad's shadow a little bit. You sort of decide, all right, time to go chart my own path in a different way. What pushes you to travel? I realized that in order to have real deep self-reflection and real deep self-introspection, I had to get out of the environment that I knew. So I grew up in Washington and I went to school at Boston for four years. I came right back to D.C., and I really hadn't left the sort of confines of the Acela Corridor, I would say that much. Um, and I just sort of had this nagging voice in my head, which was, you don't 
want to go travel when you're you know old um you you might not be able to i was very conscientious of my father dying at 58 my mom's dad died at 58 of a heart attack too so that was always sort of a, a cutoff in my own mind and i came to the realization it, it's a good time to do it go now while you're young and it'll also get you out of your comfort zone and once i was out of my comfort zone it put me in a place where i was really able to reflect uh, and I think there's a real value in that. I think that's sort of why you see, especially in the Catholic faiths, all those types of retreats, right? Uh, silent retreats, spiritual retreats, whichever one you want. Or pilgrimages. Pilgrimages, or... et cetera. You get out of your comfort zone, and then you're forced to reconcile with the man in the mirror and the voices in your head and see what they're saying and, and comprehend things and notice things. And I knew I could only do that uh, abroad. And I wanted to go somewhere where nobody knew my name, nobody knew my story, and no one cared about it. Uh, and I started out in Latin America, and then it turned into a three-year, six-continent, 65-plus country uh, uh, trip around the world. But it was it was well worth it. Were you conscious of this idea of pilgrimage while you were doing it? Did you think of it in that way? Or well, do you think of it as exile? If or you, eat, pray, love? Yeah. No, no, no. So if you, if you, one of the things I think you see in the book is... I, I always come and stumble across these Catholic places, right? So it's like the Temple of St. Buenaventura in Paraguay. And I'm always seeking out different churches um, and seeing the Catholic pilgrims in, in different places. And I think that that was sort of a combination of my own want to do it, but also a sort of shall we say, direction from above and go go feel these things, go see these things. And also other The church also too. did a pretty good job of planting yes, all the places around There's the world. Place so the the supply is there. Correct, the supply <laughs> is there. And other faiths too. I got to you know really understand Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And I, remember, you know, I went to a Buddhist monastery in, in Cambodia and it was like the Jesuit examined there in terms of, of the mind and, and and understanding suffering and then reflection of the day and, and quieting your mind and whatnot. So I, I, I enjoyed that. So I at the time, I don't think I set out on sort of, I'm going to do this massive religious journey, but I found comfort in the church while traveling. And it was always sort of a home to me, is if you were lost or you just needed a place to think or you wanted to see some beauty, go find a church. And yeah. uh, I was always able to do that. I, I have not done 65 countries, yeah. but I've done a good amount of traveling. And, you know, for me, where I, I got stretched a lot, um, my junior college, I did a semester in Rome, a semester in Beijing, um, which were like really transformative for me, but also really like hard times. Yeah. Um, there's something, um, I've done a bunch of travel with friends and groups, but uh -huh. also there's like something particular about solo travel that, really stretches you as a person, I think, um, that you, you reflected on in the book. Yeah. it To me, it's sort of this power of aloneness. And what I take that as is that when you're by yourself and you're uh, the old Paul Simon lyric, foreign man in a foreign land, right? You are forced to reconcile with your own thoughts in your in your head, but also... What's it like being alone and being on your own, far away from any comforts, right? And there's really no one here to save you. You're you have to do it yourself, and you have to work through that. And the beauty of it is, if you come out okay on the other side, you can handle anything. And I'm sure you know, if you lived in Beijing for a while, you navigated that uh, subway system. Yeah, it's wild. Out, right? It's crazy. After that, everything's yeah. easy. I, I remember after college, went back to China. Um, to help make a documentary on the church there with yeah. America. And I remember like laying in my, like this cot in this tiny village in the middle of China that no one I know is, that I know and love has ever heard of. Right. And I never felt f like just like so alone or so far away yeah. from my home. And, and then, you know, you wake up the next day and you see a smiling face and you, you go, I walked into the church and it was right. Corpus Christi and they had a Eucharistic procession and like, to feel both so inten intensely far away from everything you've known and yet to have like there be a human and religious connection in this instance on the other side, um, I don't know. It, it makes your world a lot bigger and a lot smaller at the same time. And it's that connective tissue that is so important. And I think that's one of the, the beauties of the church, 
right, is wherever you are, there is that connective tissue. And there's also that place for self-reflection. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things you see is, is uh, having a chance to do, you know, I think I did a votive offering on most every continent. And that was really neat uh, because center is you, but also realizes that that opportunity for that type of reflection in the presence of, of God and in the church is, is there. It's wonderful. I'm curious what you learned from that experience of like the the difference between digital community and actually being with the people you love. You were posting on Instagram, getting likes, yeah. but at some point it sounds like that wasn't enough. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, uh, in, if you look at the arc of the book, that's sort of where I start to realize, okay, this freedom that I sought out, this this joy of travel, this curiosity, it's kind of strangling me a little bit here because I'm, I'm always looking for what is next, what is next, and I'm kind of choosing this as a job. So the thing that was saving me is now ending up hurting me. And I think a lot of that stemmed from I wasn't going about it the way that I had before and then the way I should have, which is doing the proper research, really trying to be present, really trying to understand different peoples and different cultures. It was more sort of take the photo, post the photo, that's what you, you know, that's what people care about. That's what people want you to do. And, you know, go on your merry way, almost to some degree performing like you do in media to some degree. And uh, I thought a lot about that, which was, are you, you know, and this is a really interesting thing that I think we're seeing with younger generations, right, is who are you curating things for? Is it for you? Is it for others? It's for your following? Or is it for ego, right? And and sometimes it's ego. And, And I remember... I would have these like posts that were very descriptive originally and talking about different nuances and trying to give like a little history lesson. And I would post things like that and they wouldn't get a lot of likes. And I'd be like, oh, I kind of feel down, which is so weird. <laughs> and then I go, oh, sunset. That'll get a thing. Yeah. That gets 500 likes. Yeah. Sunset, right? And then you go out there. And so it was, uh, it was a very good lesson because I learned that you have to ultimately you know, be fulfilled, but also, uh, don't don't take the digital world that seriously because it's ultimately very fleeting. You also have no idea when the plug uh, when the plug will get pulled out, <laughs> which is very possible. One of the things I I love about this book is that you it it feels very mature, or that you kind of, as you mentioned, recognize the limits of sort of this like escapism of travel, which is like everyone. Ha- I think. For a lot of people have done it, but I think some everybody romanticizes, you know, the ability to quit their job and travel the world for a year, and thinking the that's UK going to, life. yeah, and like thinking that that's going to give them the th- the lack that they have, or that's going to help them solve the problem or find their meaning. And you get to a place where you're like, I've learned a lot, but I still am like running from the problems I started with at the beginning of this book. And you are so perceptive to touch on that because I think that's one of the main themes here is that. Your problems or whatever is bothering you is going to catch you. You can't run away from it endlessly. And I try to a degree. Uh, you went really far. I went really far. <laughs> but ultimately, it's what's you know what is that? Uh, what is inside that is limiting you, or what is inside that you see? You know, you can't seem to shake. And for me, it was really the grief of losing my father, which. I had attempted to uh, comprehend and tried to resolve, but never really allowed myself to sit in that space for long enough because I felt so uncomfortable in it. And it was easier to throw myself into hard work or throw myself into travel or throw myself into the next best thing. And it wasn't until I actually sat in that place and looked at the uh, the magnitude of the effects of that loss uh, with some real spiritual guidance as well that I was able to reach a place of peace. Can I, uh, I just want to read, please. you are at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, which is a place that is near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and you're praying there and you write, Lord, I've seen the entire world, seen too many of God's marvels on this tiny earth. I've learned so much about myself and had too many hours of self-reflection, yet I still don't know what my purpose is here. Why was I given all of this? Why can't I figure out what I should be doing? And that's like the most, those are some like searingly honest words, which is like a really good prayer and also really good prose. Um, and for that to be at the end of this this travel memoir, I think is sort of where this zags a lot of, in a lot of ways. 
it's, you know, you're bringing me back to that moment, which is such a holy place. Um, and I was, I was taken back first because there's so many folks who are there and they're so emotional, right? Like you have people crying of all ages and you have people wailing, but within that environment, when you go into the to Christ's tomb, you have that 30 seconds of peace. That is your 30 seconds to that is your own. You and the Orthodox priest that's behind you that taps your shoulder <laughs> after 30 seconds and is, let the next person. My experience right? was that someone just like, he had like a, a staff and he would just like knock on the on the wall, <laughs> like, get out, buddy. <laughs> so I had this guy, he was about three feet behind me, sort of go ahead. And it was there that I started to just let everything out. Uh, and I had, I had started, you know, prior to that, I had started to do therapy and I started to be more reflective. I started to write a lot and write out my journals. And I knew I wanted to do a book. Uh, but it was there where sitting in that space, I was able to reach a sort of comfort. And the comfort came from saying those things, but then also hearing a sort of voice of God of, he hears you. It's okay. Go out. And I come to the realization, you know, there, it's just be at peace with, with dad, that your father loves you and your dad cares about you and your dad loves you no matter what you do. And um, that was, it was a beautiful moment. It's a really beautiful moment. A lot of us idolize our parents and it's hard to find the place of separation and whether that separation is a betrayal or just you <laughs> being your authentic self. So how did you get to a place where you could still love, honor, your dad and and find your find your own path, especially when the whole world is telling yeah, you how yeah. great your dad is. You know, too. it's interesting. It's like you for me, and I think this is a universal thing, though. So you you feel the weight of legacy, right? And if it's not a legacy, you feel the weight of your parents' expectations. You feel the weight of uh, you know to who much is given, much is expected, or whatnot. And I think for me, it was coming to this reality of if you are doing what you're passionate about or if you are doing where it's something that you care about and you're not hurting anybody, right? And you're you're taking the gifts your parents have given you, you're taking the gifts that God's given you and you're putting it to, to good use and you're you know treating people with respect, then that's a pretty damn nice thing to have. Um, and I think good parents realize that from their children. And I knew my father always did. And my mom, who pushes me a lot to this day, <laughs> I think has, has come around and realized that too, that it's cliche, but you kind of allowed to let them be themselves a little bit. Right. Um, but not completely untethered. <laughs> I do want to go back to one thing you mentioned journaling and how, that was kind of the, oh, yeah. this book is the fruits of the journaling you were doing mm -hmm. all along this process. Um, journaling is something I've always wished I was doing and don't do. And so many Catholic or spiritual leaders or just therapists will like tell you the benefits of journaling. And yet I haven't gotten myself there. Um, so I'm wondering if that has always been something you did. And there's a line in the book where you talk about you're going back and reading your journals and what you see there seems like more true than this like monologue that's running right. in your head. Um, so, so I, yeah, just your experience of journaling and how, how well, that guided this very journey. Very good read comprehension. That's <laughs> a very minute detail that you got there. So I appreciate that. Uh, I had journaled a little bit, especially in my teen angst years. I felt I journaled, right? Because I was an only child. Yeah. So. I have a direct correlation between the level of angst I had in my life and the level of journaling <laughs> right. I did. Right. 100%. I, I feel there. that so hard. So I had a lot of that teen angst journaling, uh, for sure. And I was an only child, so I don't have a sibling to uh, you know, beat up or, or <laughs> express my you know, disdain for what my parents had punished me for at the time. So... I then I, and then when I got it at NBC and I was in media, I was working so much that I kind of got away from it. And I said to myself when I started traveling that I had to do it because it was a way to center me, but also gave me a job in my mind. I was like, I'm not just going to be out there drinking beer, hanging out on the beach. Like, go see things <laughs> that are important. Write, you know, write about them. And if nothing else comes of it, at least you have something to show for the future. Like. Yeah, you know, I didn't write a book or I didn't do anything, but, you know, here's 50 journals and have at it, right? And 
it became very therapeutic for me because something that might not sound right in my mind, I would write it out and observe it, look at it, edit it. Uh, and you ultimately find, all right, that's what I meant to say. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what's sort of coming out there. But there were other times where it was just a, just a tornado of emotions and thoughts, just for scribble, 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 scribble. And going back to what we were talking about earlier about you know Instagram and, and likes and whatnot, I, I, the, the quality of the journaling had gotten worse around that time. And I realized it's because I was more focused on the digital and pulled away from the written word, and that was a problem. And so I went, you know, back into the written word. But people out there for journaling, I mean, there's all types you can do. Uh, one of the things I I would do if I was short on time or if I was just, you know, not, I didn't have a, a moment to sit down is just bullet points. And the one benefit of a lot of the digital stuff is because we take so many photos now is if you bullet point and then you take a bunch of photos, those photos get the mind going again, yeah. right? Oh, I remember that time and place. I remember where I was. And you line that up to the bullet points and you're able to reconstruct a lot of what you were feeling at the moment or a lot of what was happening. The only the most consistent journal I've ever kept was my semester abroad in, in Rome when this is, a, it was a period for me of like really turbulent angst where I was doing my best effort at trying to decide if I wanted to be a priest or I wanted to be married. I, I really gave it a go, I thought then. Right. And it's, um, Re, like and I hadn't touched those for about ten years, and now I'm married and um, really happy with life. But I go back and I look at this, and I and it was, I I also resonated with like it made it was way more objective. It I, I was able to love myself back then, yeah. and at the time I was like I thought I was a mess and I was all over the place, and I was like oh you were you're a good guy like I yeah. I, I want to be with you and think you know it, it was. Really insightful for me to go back and see that. It's remarkable because I went back recently and read some of the stuff. There's a lot of stuff, unfortunately, I wasn't able to include in the book, which I was just so bummed about. And I went back to read some of that. Um, and just sort of like you said, I was just some of the stuff in a dark place. I was like, oh, I was sort of out of control then. I wasn't doing well then. And I looked back and I read it. I was like, Okay, it wasn't that bad, right? Yeah, and like, yeah. it was. It was just sort of you're confused, and you're trying to sort of figure out uh, what's happening and and what's bothering you, and and what's a good way forward. So yeah, we both were talking and really like this book. You end on a good note, but you sort of are fine with the idea of still being a work in progress. So maybe a good place to end is you know where are you at right now? I came to the realization of all that was getting over. The loss of my dad was a huge moment for me. And you're never totally over it, but it's sort of, I'm at peace with that. And I, then I get this question now a lot. It's sort of, well, what's next for you? What do you want to do? And I realized I like storytelling. Uh, I put my heart and soul into this book. This was a four-year project. Uh, seven years, if you count all the travel. <laughs> I joked seven years in Tibet, right? It's my own version of that. But I think I like storytelling, and I like to be able to bring attention to certain things that are going on. I feel that I've been blessed with the abilities, uh, natural, and then also through uh, following to do that. Uh, what medium it will take could be a podcast, could be document, uh, documentary film, could be something else. But I think that's what I'm leaning towards right now. Is I like the storytelling space. Um, I don't think I want to go into the the day to day grind of 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 news again, but I never say never. I always people ask, "Are you a journalist?" It's I'm a recovering journalist. <laughs> uh, you can always fall back into it we to some relate. degree. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think after this, you know, before I traveled, I was like, "Well, maybe I'll go be a." One of my dreams, like I'll go be a park ranger one day. You know, <laughs> sit in the national parks of America and just have a wonderful time being out in nature. And as much as I love being out in nature and being able to feel all the beauty of, of God's natural world, I don't think I want to be a park ranger anymore. Take but. the boy out of the acela Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's quite cool. <laughs> uh, Luke, before we let you go, we have one final question yeah. for you that we ask all of our guests, um, which is- if Thank you, could... you for the Guinness, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> There's three more. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real- who would it be? And oh my gosh, that's a tough question. If you could canonize one person, who would it be? All right, well, so there is a nun who taught my father named Sister Lucille Sociarelli, and she was a nun, and she was the one who got him on the straight and narrow, and he had a lot of rambunctious energy as a young kid. Uh, and she was a very sweet woman who 
I think, imparted on him the best parts of the Catholic faith and then did that did that for me. She used to call me her her grandmother in faith, her spiritual grandmother. Love that. <laughs> so she would write me cards all the time and I would go visit the convent and the nuns were just some of the greatest people in the world. And she died a few years ago, which was, we miss Sister Lucille a lot. Uh, but until her dying days, she would go, she, she would go pray and, and counsel people at the hospital. And even when she was in rough shape, she would do it herself. And I always thought that was just an incredible thing. So she's a saint uh, in my mind, for sure. All right. Well, St. Lucille's, uh, Sociarelli. St. Lucille. Yeah. St. Sister Lucille, Sociarelli, pray for us. Uh, the book is Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself by Luke Russer, and you can find it wherever books are sold. It's out now from Harper Horizon. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Cause I give my all, all, The jump and risk the fall I see no limits in the sky Little by little here No, no All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Got a couple things this week. First of all, uh, if you missed it, or we dropped earlier this week in the feed a bonus episode, a preview of our conversation with Father Jim McDermott and Father Ricardo da Silva about the new Hulu documentary, The Pope Answers, which is the most thrilling thing you can watch on television right now. So had a lot of fun with that. Um, you can listen to the first 10 minutes of that in this feed right here that you're listening to. Uh, and if you want to listen to the whole thing, it's a thrilling conversation. You're going to want to watch the movie, listen to the conversation. It's all good. Um, you need to join our Patreon feed and you can do that at patreon.com slash America Media. And to that point, we have several new patrons that we'd like to shout out this week. Yes, a huge thank you to Gigi Branza, Haley Hayes, Andrea Kelly Rosenberg, Trish, also, Peter Olson, Aurelia Tavardis, Aaron Williams, and a special shout out to Justin Reyes, who joined us in studio this week. So, Justin, thanks so much for supporting the show and taking us up on the the offer to come in and have a drink and sit in on a recording with us. Yeah. So if you are a member of the Patreon community and you find yourself in New York on a Wednesday afternoon, uh, we would love to meet you and uh, welcome you to our recording. We would love a reason to pour another one of you a drink. And we're not going to do as one friend speaks to another this week. Um, our producer informed us that our conversation with Luke was uh, rich enough in spiritual content. And also let along. We talked for too much, which is, you know, no surprise for Ashley or I. But um, this is, you know, also it, it leans into uh, some news that you have this week, which is that you're going to be gone for a couple weeks. Yeah. Yes? So I'll be gone for the next two weeks of Jesuitical. I'm going over to Amman, Jordan. You read Luke's book and you were like... <laughs> I, I I'm need to travel. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have uh, a good friend from college who works in Amman, and I figured, for how much of my life, we'll have a friend in Amman that I can visit, uh, and so I'm gonna go over there, and I'm really excited. Yeah, and it, it's home to a lot of important cultural and religious sites, uh, including Mount Nebo, uh, where Moses is said to have looked upon the holy or the promised land, though he never entered it. So, looking forward to a, a little bit of a mini pilgrimage within this trip. Well, no pressure, but when I was in the Middle East last, I got a tattoo. <laughs> oh, so, just saying. Um, all right. If there's a tattoo shop that's been in business for millennia, I'll, I'll consider it. All right. All right. So, listeners, if you know of a tattoo shop that's been open for a long time in Jordan, please let Ashley know if you've got any Jordan tips. Uh, let Ashley know. But we'll, we'll miss you. It is a well-deserved vacation. I don't you. think you've ever taken two weeks off since I've known you. So, I'm very... Uh, happy for you and grateful that you're taking the time to uh, experience some, some nice travel that we talked to Luke about. Thank you. And good luck holding up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should say we, we will not be gone. This feed will still be active during that time. So, yep. so stay tuned. All right. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sandro. And live in-studio audience provided by Justin Reyes. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. 
please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lochert studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. He'll see you next week. (laughs) I will. Yes, I will. Have fun, Ashley. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.